Welcome to Education Beat. I'm Ann Vasquez, Executive Director of EdSource. Back in 1978, California voters passed Proposition 13 in response to rising property taxes. A new analysis concludes that Prop 13 has contributed to a widening wealth gap, a severe housing shortage, and for decades, inadequate funding for public schools. Up until 1978, property taxes had accounted for about two-thirds of the state's education revenues. Prop 13 dramatically lowered school funding by capping property tax rates at 1% of a property's purchase price. We have cemented into our system currently a stark and deep intergenerational inequity that also is unfair to the new majority of Californians. What more have we learned about Prop 13's legacy? And where do we go from here? Here is this week's Education Beat with host Zadie Stavely. Maria Echaveste grew up in Fresno and Ventura counties in the 1950s and 60s. Her parents were farm workers, and she also worked in the fields as a child. She went to public school at a time when California was investing a lot in education. In fact, California was in the top five of the 50 states. It had a public education system that really was the envy of the country. And it was from kindergarten right on through higher ed. I mean, I could go to law school at the University of California at Berkeley and come out with very little debt. But more critically, I went to a rural school in Fresno County and then middle school and high school in Oxnard, California. Not very high income places at all. But I had a quality education that truly prepared me and the rest of my siblings to be able to succeed. I mean, I got admitted to Stanford University and I was competing with folks who had gone to private schools and and I did well. And I really credit the fact that California invested in high quality education. Maria has built a notable career, working as an attorney, a lecturer at UC Berkeley, and a senior White House official under Clinton. She maintains she worked hard, of course, But she says, really, what allowed her and her siblings to go to college, graduate, buy their own homes, was California's investment in education. Investment in what Maria calls the California dream. People don't really talk about a Minnesota dream or an Illinois dream. You have the California dream. You could come to California, just like the American dream, the myth we have, with nothing and build a future and remake yourself. And part of what created that dream was the investment in infrastructure that includes education. Infrastructure is not just roads and dams. It is also investing in the human capital. And that's what California did for the first 20 million people in its state. And then about in the mid-70s, California decided that it wasn't going to make those investments again. In 1978, California voters passed Proposition 13. It capped property tax rates to 1% of the purchase price. Before this, properties were assessed at least every five years. And it limited future property tax increases to 2% a year. In addition, and this is a real kicker, It required two-thirds of voters, rather than a 50% majority, 
to vote yes on any new tax for something specific, like schools in a local election. The result was a hollowing of school funding. California fell from fifth in per-student funding to 47th in the nation in the next two decades. And I think achieving the California dream, the American dream, is truly much harder today. This is Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools. This week, the legacy of Prop 13. Maria Echaveste is the director of a nonprofit organization called the Opportunity Institute. They just published a report, together with another organization, Pivot Learning, called Unjust Legacy, how Proposition 13 has contributed to intergenerational economic and racial inequities in schools and communities. It shows how Prop 13 deepened the housing wealth gap between Black and Latino Californians and white Californians, and how it deepened the inequities between schools. My colleague John Fensterwald wrote about the report for EdSource. Hi, John. Hi, Zeddy. So what's the big deal about this report about Prop 13? What, what did it find? Yes. Well, I guess the title tells you everything. Unjust legacy, it says. So it was time after nearly 45 years to take a look at this Proposition 13 to see its long-term impacts. The report found that it had led to disparities in wealth because what happened was those existing homeowners had a tremendous advantage and many properties have sold it's not like most of the people who were there then still have their properties, although you could at the time pass it on to your heirs at the same assessed value. That's changed recently, but that was one of the effects. And it, those who had homes at that time have had a tremendous advantage in terms of the taxes that they've been paying for 45 years. And this report went back and said, well, all right, well let's take a look at, at who benefited. And so mainly it was wealthy, homeowners whose properties were highly assessed and also uh, white homeowners who were saw that their wealth over time had increased relative to others. And when you think about it, that makes sense because if you're a black family, you never had a chance to accumulate family wealth because you were shut out of federal home loans. You were often restricted zoning. You just never had a chance to accumulate the wealth that you could buy a house. And the same with Latino families, many of whom were had recently settled in, in the United States. It takes a generation to do that. Owning a home also impacts a bunch of other opportunities, like paying for college. Here's Maria Echaveste. For most Americans, their home is their most valuable asset. It is what people use to take out a loan to fund their children's education so they can graduate without debt or to start a business. And... What we know is that if you're not able to buy a home, then you're not going to have access to those resources. As the demography changed and as more people of color bought homes, they're buying homes and paying what is, when you run the numbers, is actually higher taxes than the people who bought their homes before. Proposition 13 is really then discouraged new home developments partly because it changed the whole tax structure and so it capped property taxes. So 
cities and counties look for other sources and it turned to sales tax and the like. And therefore, you're more likely to zone for a Walmart than you were for a new home development. Again, Prop 13 isn't the only reason why homes are scarce. I mean, you have nimbyism, you have the rising values of land, lots of different reasons, but it was one factor. And it also led, as we're going to get into, this investment in education. Right. So let's talk about that, about the effect on um, education. Um, We know that there was sort of an immediate effect when Prop 13 passed. Can you kind of explain that? Well, because it capped all the taxes that you could pay towards schools primarily, therefore you had to find another source. And what it did was transfer the funding of education from local districts to the state Interestingly enough, a few years before Prop 13, you had the Serrano cases that went through the Supreme Court. And the timing of that is fascinating. That's one thing the report looked at. Serrano case said, in which the Supreme Court said, funding based on property taxes violated the rights of children in school districts with low tax basis. It was just an unconstitutional against those children. Those families couldn't raise the amount of money that those families in wealthy districts. The court didn't rule out funding of schools through property taxes. It just said you had to distribute it more fairly. And the legislature was going to do that. And then boom, Prop 13 comes along, caps property taxes. So you had to find another source. And there was some discussion as to saying, okay, well, what was the reaction of California knowing that in fact that many of their property taxes were going to be distributed outside of your district more fairly? And so one of the arguments is that it was sort of that racism that was going on at the time and anti-foreign sentiment. Californians felt, well, here, I've been paying all these property taxes and now they're not going to be going to my kids. They're going to other families' kids. And so that was sort of in the background of this thing too. The report discusses how in the 1970s, there was a lot of immigration of Latino and Asian families into California, and they had children in schools. And in addition, the state's mix of population, then two-thirds white, was changing. Here's how Maria Echeveste sees it. And I have to tell you, when I look at that, when I look at California, because I, I did benefit, because my family and many, many other people I know were able to get that education. Maybe you don't want to call it racism, but it seems very interesting to me that we had this convergence of anti-tax, anti-government, and changing demography that creates the inequities that we are struggling with right now. John, so then Prop 13 passes, and it basically limits the amount of revenue that the state can get from property tax, and then limits some of the revenue that the state can put towards schools. So what happened since then? Well, there was a tremendous disinvestment in schools for the next 25 years. California used to be the fifth highest per student spending in the nation. And by the early 2000s, this is pre the Great Recession, it was already 47th in the nation. And so the state passed Proposition 98, which said, as a way of funding schools, it said, we're going to set 
schools a percentage of the amount of general fund, roughly 40%. But at the same time, there was, you know, that was your main source. And there were other things that happening in the state government too, which was enlarging. So schools felt that real disinvestment because they also couldn't pass parcel taxes each district without a two-thirds vote. That would prove to be very, very hard to do. Parcel taxes are essentially a special tax imposed on each piece, or parcel, of property. But it's not based on the property's value. It's a flat tax. Cities or counties or school districts can pass parcel taxes to pay for something specific. But in order to do that after Prop 13, you have to have two-thirds of voters approve. And the fact is that most parcel taxes have been adopted by wealthy communities. I think about 10% of districts have adopted some form of parcel tax, but they range from $75 a year to over 1,000 in small wealthy districts. Here's Maria Echaveste again. You can live in a place like Berkeley, which passes a parcel tax fairly easily. But you can be in Modesto or Merced or Sanger or Dinuba in the Central Valley. And those kinds of school bonds, parcel taxes, they're not going to pass as easily. And so the inequities continue. In the decades since the passing of Prop 13, legislators have reformed income tax laws in California. And it's helped. Today, it's a little different because now we have funding state government primarily through the personal income tax. And it's one of the most progressive in the nation where 1% of income earners in California pay 50% of the income tax. And so we increased the income tax on the wealthiest earners back in 2016. And so now California, we don't know for sure, we won't know for a couple years, but it's certainly at at least the national average probably more, even when considering the high cost of living in California. And we also passed the local control funding formula, which provides extra money to those districts based on low-income students, English learners, homeless, and foster children. Those districts are funded at above, well above the national average. So Prop 13's impact has been negated by this progressive income tax. Nonetheless, California, as a percentage of its total income that's going to education, is among the lowest in the nation because California is a very wealthy state overall, despite the fact it also has one of the highest poverty rates in the nation. Even with, you know, Prop 98 and even with this income tax reform, there is still a possibility that when we keep talking about this fiscal cliff where um, the revenue may drop in other years and sort of this volatility. I noticed that someone in your story said something about, you know, reforming property tax would help smooth out that volatility. It could. The progressive income tax is very volatile because you're depending on the stock market and it, it creates boom and bust cycles. So right now we have a reserve for Prop 98, which is at max, it's about 10% or $10 billion. And at the same time, districts have their reserves. So there are ways that the state could deal with the problem of volatility. It often doesn't because the legislature traditionally would rather spend the money as opposed to put it in a reserve. And 
there are other ways other than the property tax, but the property tax is by and large a much more stable source and it could be used and made more progressive. Maria Echaveste says for a family like hers, a farm working family growing up in California today, the dream she achieved, going to college, going to graduate school, owning her own home, is a dream that is much, much harder to achieve now. If I'm a farm worker family and my parents don't speak English and I'm making so little, the pressure to just start working. I mean, the pandemic right now, we have a percentage of adolescents who we've lost, who went during the pandemic, went to get a job to help their family because the father got laid off. Can, can a farm worker family today dream? Yes, they can dream, but that dream is further and further away and less likely to be realized because of the structural inequities we have built into our system now. So, John, what did the report's authors come up with in terms of solutions? Well, you know, part of a solution, it depends what your question you're asking. Do we want to make the system fairer or do we want to raise more money for schools? And the way you ask that question, you get different approaches. Uh, One thing that it said is you could end the 1% cap on assessments gradually, and that would raise the amount of taxes from that. Or you could raise instead of 2%, you could change that. It would be more than 2% taxation limit per year. Uh, You could change the two-thirds requirement for apostle taxes down to 55%, which is what it is for school bonds. That's been talked about for as long as I've been covering education, and I honestly don't understand why it hasn't happened. And you could also, and this is what I sort of intrigues me, is you could approach this from means testing, because as we've said, property taxes aren't necessarily progressive because lots of families' situations change from year to year. Or you could make it so that higher property taxes become a lien on your property so that when you sell it, you benefit as long as you're there, then when you sell, that's when you would pay more in taxes, even perhaps some of the advantage that you got. But the main thing is Prop 13 remains popular because as soon as you become a property owner, you have an interest in keeping Prop 13 relative to your neighbor. Um, How was the report received, John? It depends by whom. (laughs) And I think a lot of people who've been anxious to see reform of Prop 13 really like the report, and they particularly like that long-term analysis to see its impact on families and on the widening gap of wealth over time. That was new. And I think it was dismissed by the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Associations, named after the creator and leader for Prop 13 that said, well, this is, you know, typical researcher stuff and if Prop 13 remains popular and so in California we have enough taxes and that was predictable too. I think that the main thing, Zadie, is is a generation gap because most people, particularly and certainly millennials, never heard of Howard Jarvis or don't pay attention much to Prop 13. I think when you lay out the arguments about 
Look at your neighbor who is paying one half the property taxes you are and look at the assessment of theirs versus yours. There's an inequity. I think that they would say, well, how this happened? Let's change it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools, a production of EdSource. You can read John's story at edsource.org. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Special thanks to our guests, Maria Echaveste and John Fensterwald. Our director is Anne Vasquez. Our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was brought to you by the Stewart Foundation. I'm Zadie Stavely. Join me next week and subscribe so you won't miss an episode.